Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our seminar guest today is Konza. Konza is the co-founder of the Liberty Australia Institute and the chairman of the Libertarian Party of Australia. He has been blogging on Austro-Libertarian thought for many years. His YouTube channel hosts videos on the Austrian School of Economics that have been viewed more than two and a half million times. And perhaps most impressive of all, he is the Twitter champion of posting screenshots of Austrian books to settle any argument and any dispute. It is one of my nightmares that one day I will say something on Twitter and Konza will come up 
with a big screenshot from Austrian text that proves me wrong. So far, I've escaped that fate. But Constance, I want you to know, you know, if that ever happens, uh, you know, be relentless. Don't worry about me. Just because I had you on my podcast doesn't mean you owe me <laughs> to not point out. So please keep the screenshots uh, coming. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Safe. It's great to be here. So let's begin by telling us a little bit about your own background, how you got into Austrian economics and what brought you into Bitcoin and all of these things. Yeah, they are amazing things. My journey really kind of starts, um, where, do, where do we want to start? Probably the easiest thing is I had like an existential crisis. You know, I just finished school, was about to embark upon uni, went to the UK, did a gap year, kind of a teacher without a degree. I was like the token Australian living in Northamptonshire, had a bit of free time and it was the question of what I want to do with the rest of my life, what am I passionate about? And partly was asking those big questions. And the existential crisis I mentioned was what is the truth? And then what do I want to contribute to the world? What value can I bring? I had a, a kind of a, a big thought process. I reached out to a few people. I wanted to think about what could I do? And, and I wrote to a few people, you know, Noam Chomsky was one of those where I was, you know, I'd asked well, what do the old old school thinkers think? So I read like Aristotle's Ethics, Players Republic, you know, Machiavelli, like getting an understanding of trying to understand what the truth and what they thought that was. And then I thought, oh, what did the current modern thinkers think? And that was Noam Chomsky. And, you know, wrote to him, you know, got a response. I was prospecting things like, oh, do you want to do law or an entrepreneur? You know, 18, 19 years old, big, big, big ideas. Um, but yeah, it was around the, the Ron Paul era. So I was looking at a, a Noam Chomsky video and someone had posted Ron Paul, America's Last Hope on this YouTube video. And that was kind of the start of the rabbit hole of who's Ron Paul, um, you know, Texas congressman speaking truth to power in, you know, 2008, 2007. That was, you know, several days of investigating this guy must sell out surely. Uh, he doesn't. Um, this guy's too good to be true. Oh no, he really is. Uh, and that, that really was the, the clincher. It wasn't so much what he was saying. Um, it was where he was saying it. He was like on a Republican stage in the debates going, you're all warmongers essentially. Um, and it was that truth to power piece that really sold me. I thought, oh, the free market stuff, that's a bit radical. That's, you know, I was kind of thought myself as an independent. I intuitively didn't like politicians. You know, I'm not quote unquote left or right. Like I was kind of stuck in the status box in that 2D mentality. And I didn't understand economics. Uh, and it was through going, parroting Ron Paul's conclusions, the constitution that I fought for many months. And then someone on one of the forums, the Ron Paul forums to a kind of good argument, like an Austrian argument about something that I was inadvertently wrong on. And I was like, okay, I got to, why does Ron think what he thinks, you know, kind of hero of sorts. And it was specifically the Austrian school of economics um, and going down that rabbit hole with the Mises Institute, you know, devouring everything instead of studying uni was, you know, up to 3am reading Mises, <laughs> Rothbard, Hopper uh, and everyone else. So yeah, that's kind of my journey um, from the, the kind of Austrian lens. And then from a Bitcoin perspective, um, there's the Mises Community Forums, um, which I was, you know, very engaged with um, that used to exist, that don't no longer exist, but are archived. So Mises.community, if you want to look at all those amazing content, um, David Veskler 
is still maintaining that. And I've kind of helped push him a few times to keep it up. Amazing conversations there. 2011, first heard about Bitcoin. I was very skeptical. I was essentially under the mindset of, you know, it's, it's kind of fiat or, you know, it's obviously not by decree or legal tender laws, but I didn't, my objections were kind of similar to Peter Schiff uh, in the sense of not that I thought it had intrinsic value, but I didn't think it had an objective use value, which is, you know, we can unpack where it's like, okay, there's a, you know, we could talk about commodities and them having an objective, um, you know, other alternate use. And I was that for several years. Eventually, Conrad Graff, who's a, a mentor of sorts, convinced me I was wrong, um, you know, that, that it doesn't violate Mises' regression theorem. It, it's it's actually the best elaborated you know, example we have of that uh, in action. And so, yeah, kind of around that period, I was very much theoretically on board, but still practically speaking, that was my gap. And I think that's actually a gap with a lot of Austrians who might get the theory and but the practical side of things is a barrier there. There's a blocker with some libertarians. It's like, okay, yeah, I get it, but or they don't necessarily get it. Um, but they're, they're still, if they can be shown it, then it's similarly um, with the arguments we have like, oh, we should de, de, uh, you know, destatize a taxi cartel. You can make the theory and the argument, but most people, you know, like, oh, that's crazy. But then say Uber comes along, the practical example, they can see it and it's immediately there and it's a, it's a lot easier to convince people. So, yeah, that was my kind of Bitcoin rabbit hole early, early days, being skeptical coming around from Conrad Graff and actually had him speak at the Mises seminars I kind of co-founded in uh, 2011. We had Hopper come out in Sydney. He came back, uh, sorry, Walter Block in Sydney the next year. And then we had Jeffrey Tucker in 2013. And so 2013 had Conrad speak about Bitcoin. I think it might've been first time Bitcoin being spoken at a conference, maybe not so much by the cyberpunks, definitely in Australia. But yeah, he's he's got some mechanical work that still stands the test of time. And yeah, look, I got, I suppose my first bit of Bitcoin was gifted by Jeffrey Tucker, helping me set it up when he came out as well. You know, that $5 becoming, um, you know, <laughs> 800 or so uh, at peak is, it's a good little thing where people see see that, you know, if you're gifting to someone and then as, as number, you know, has previously <laughs> you know been going up and, and will continue to long-term, it's a good convincing piece too. Yeah, that's probably my, my Bitcoin, you know, short summary of how I've kind of come to where I am, I suppose, today. I must say I'm absolutely astonished by your command of Austrian economics and your ability to pull up uh, texts relevant to any discussion. I think it's, it's, it's just astonishing. Every time somebody is on Twitter saying anything about Austrian economics that's not 100% correct, Konza <laughs> comes in, you know, like Superman or Batman. Somebody made the call and Konza steps in. It has his giant screenshots of doom, quoting Rothbard and Mises and Hoppe, and sets them straight. And it's just, people never really respond because it's just so comprehensive. Like, nope, you're wrong. There is no such a thing as a right to free speech. There's a right to free property. And here's three screenshots of death from Rothbard on why that it is. And it's just, you can't argue with it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and often get some pushback where it's, you know, never appeal to authority. Like, you know, I can talk about where, you know, I think Rothbard's wrong and Mises is wrong, so, but it's often people never give them the benefit of the doubt. And they, what I've kind of historically done is there's a lot of things that are 
potentially objectionable, but they've written about it elsewhere and elaborated it. And most people then don't go to that degree to look or if they write it off. Um, but no, I definitely stand on the shoulder of giants. Um, and the, over the last 14 years or so since what, 2007, since a, you know, here in Australia, kind of missed being in the US for the Ron Paul revolution and, you know, the Mises you know, community, community with the, on the internet, you know, you can engage with these ideas a whole lot more, they're a little bit sparse here. So I was natively more interested in, you know, engaging these communities and I became very efficient at, you know, devour the content. Whilst I had started that process, it was saving the best snapshots. So like, yeah, con- condensing you know, uh, you know, 1500 pages of human action or, you know, so man economy and state um, to look, I, every time I'm, I'm arguing on the internet, I'm becoming very efficient at it. I've seen this objection, you know, a hundred, hundred plus times. Okay. I'm sick of, you know, responding. I'm just going to save that on uh, my blog and very easily I can, you know, if it's a topic, you know, I can very within seconds essentially just grab it and, and pop it in. Very, uh, so my mind's kind of become geared that way now. So it's you know potentially a challenge when discussing things as we go through. It will immediately go, oh yep, I got a reference here, and that's exactly what it is. I won't potentially be able to remember it all, but so I'll be doing some paraphrasing, and that's often my thing as well, where I have a higher standard for online discussions where people can stop think there's no time pressure with just talking with someone in general yeah you kind of have to paraphrase and you know make it a proper conversation so i stand on the shoulder of giants you know <laughs> come at me with mistakes it's all about um, picking up i'm a big fan of accuracy i think you, you have you know, the worst thing that could be done to a movement is to be ineptly not skillfully attacked but ineptly defended uh, that's a kind of big emphasis of mine uh, so, you know, with certain hot takes get, get put out there, uh, that I don't think is strategically good or actually accurate and can create problems long-term. That's why I kind of, you know, have this, this passion that, that comes to correct folk, but I welcome that myself. It's the, it's the only way we, I kind of can improve. I think two things for me, it's being you know intellectually honest and open to reason and then, if you had that in mind, like no one starts at the position where I'm at or you're at, uh, you have to, you know, I was wrong at certain points in time. I want that to be pointed out if I am so I can continue to grow and evolve. But yeah, that's, um, that's kind of where, I, where I'm at now. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health.
And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. You've written a lot about praxeology. It's, um, it's a great tool of the um, method of the Austrian school. What would you say is praxeology and make the case for our listeners why they should pay attention to it? Why is it important? Yeah, well, what is praxeology? Yeah, it's, it's a science uh, that studies the logic of human action. And now we can, you know, I can unpack that and I will obviously... Uh, in a moment, but just straight off the bat, why is it important? Why is praxeology important? It's the it's the only true new science since ancient times. Um, you know, everything else had some kind of precedent in the ancient world, but this is totally new field of knowledge and uh, that people don't know. Uh, you know what to, they don't know how to make of it or how to kind of mentally categorize it. And I don't think it can be emphasized overemphasizing enough what a radical development it is to to say there is definite knowledge about humanity that is not part of ethics like ethical or ought sciences and is not merely contingent or conventional in nature how to put praxeology in the grand scheme of knowledge so it's, it's not physical it's not biological you're not looking at the biology of the person you're not looking at the ethics and yet you're making uh, conclusions about what humans do right exactly and so Men's freedom to choose is like restricted in a threefold way. And Mises kind of lays it out. First, as you mentioned, is the physical laws. You, we have to kind of understand those to adjust our conduct if we want to live. Second is then, you know, the individual's innate characteristics, how they, you know, with operational environmental factors that, that come into play as well. So we obviously know they influence choice of means, um, choice of ends and, and that as well of means. And then, yeah, you have the third categories, which is, Praxeology, which covers essentially it's a regularity of phenomena with regard to the interconnectedness of means and ends. And so obviously, yes, not physiological and not physical, but that category is like the elucidation of that and informal examination of it, that those third class of laws, universal, timeless, regardless of, of place like apply, that's the subject matter of praxeology. And you know, coming back to why it's important, it can sound potentially boring, <laughs> boring, but believe me, it that body of economic knowledge, which is a praxeology, which Mises referred to as, as, as one branch, elaborates it's, it's the most, you know, most uh, developed branch. But yeah, it's essentially, you know, the structure of human civilization. It's, it's that vital, all the kind of intellectual, moral, technical, you know, achievements kind of build off, off of this rich treasure of, of knowledge and it's not like you can deny the laws of economics, but you can't defy them. It essentially furnishes laws in the form of, you know, if X and Y remains unchanged, then Z will result. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. It doesn't grasp, we'll go through what it is not as well a little later. It can be, you know, the other side of the coin, what it, what it is and what it isn't. But yeah, essentially incredible mental tool to grasp, helping grasp reality and understand reality is specifically relating to human action, you know, which is vital to, to civilization. And just going back and unpacking, so it's the science that studies the logic of human action, science, 
So we'll kind of unpack that. Scientia, so like Latin for correct knowledge. It's older and wiser than the positive slash pragmatist attempt to monopolize the term. So, you know, Rothbard's got a great article, The Mantle of Science. And, you know, you often have the positivists or empiricists, you know, very, they're un, actually unscientific in their approach where they try and apply the same methodology they apply to the physical sciences, uh, the natural sciences to human action or the social sciences as well. Completely invalid. But yeah, so it, it is absolutely a science. It's all about you know, trying to determine correct knowledge. And then you have logic as well. So unpacking that. So way to think about it, praxeology consists of really two elements, the fundamental axioms, and then you know, one being human action, and then the propositions successfully deduced from those, you know, with different corollaries or, you know, as you kind of refine it, different postulates. And then, but neither of those axioms can be deduced or tested or verified by like appealing to history, that observation, once it is kind of referenced, it can be recognized as universally as tr universally as true. So it's like an introspective analysis and it's still scientific regardless of that though. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter if it's the propositions are tested according to you know, it's, they're, they're all the propositions are tested according to the universally accepted laws of logic. It doesn't matter if that, it's, a, it's like a short chain or it's at the very end of a long chain. If they're all you're building on a proper axiom, you know, human action axiom that individuals, you know, act, use, pursue valued ends with scarce means. And then in fact, an axiom and the reason, you know, we can probably unpack, you know, what an axiom is essentially where it's an unchallengeable and self-evident kind of truth where the critic who attempts to refute it, you know, actually proves it to be true in the process of, of doing that and part of that refutation. And yeah, so really kind of a human axiom, whether it's you've got an Aristotelian kind of philosophical bent or Neo-Kantian, which we can talk about, you know, a priori versus a posteriori, you know, prior to experience or a post-experience. Essentially, Mises is, um, you know, given us the the proper framework to, to view human action. It's it's an incredible, incredible tool. And yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot more we can unpack, you know, in terms of the methodologies that it approaches, you know, methodological dualism, individualism, um, singularism, and, and kind of topics praxeology covers. But yeah, to answer your question, you know, why is it important? Like, you know, vitally important to, you know, human civilization, you want one kind of good analogy is, you know, if you're in an engineer, someone's building a, a bridge and, you know, they know they're aware of that there's this field of engineering that exists. And if you don't, you can have next to no confidence in, you can, you can actually see it's physically, you know, the bridge is going to break down or it's, it's uh, going to be a disaster. So they've kind of got, you know, want a bit of phrase skin in the game, but with economics, it's, the challenge is that they feel like that they they understand it or they don't know that there's this whole field of knowledge that they need to learn. So it's like, if I don't, I don't know calculus, you know, I'm not going around saying, you know, calculus is wrong or it's invalid or like I'm aware that there's this field of knowledge that exists and I have to learn it. I have to take action, study, think to understand it. Frustratingly with, you know, the environment we're in the moment, you know, economics is a field and, and you know, praxeology is the, the proper approach for most 
you know, they've got an opinion on these matters, but they don't understand there's this whole field of knowledge that is specifically, you know, answers their questions or provides the right framework to look at it in the lens to, to view it. So I, you know, democracy, I get a vote. Like I can just, anything in social sciences, it's not understanding that, yeah, it's by by, by learning about it and by, by really grasping the reality of, you know, if X and Y remains unchanged and Z will result, things like the minimum wage, you know, it becomes clear that, oh, your good, your good feelings of I want people to be paid more money and so I support this state intervention isn't actually, you're not going to be able to achieve the, the ends you want via the means you're proposing. And really, praxeology, it's all about providing these, this hidden kind of laws and by understanding those, you can really get a better handle on the consequences of, of various human action, definitely at a policy level and in other areas as well. So that's probably the kind of the snapshot of, of what it is. In in my forthcoming book, Principles of Economics, the textbook, which you're uh, reviewing at this point, I don't know if you've got into this <laughs> or if it's a coincidence, but that's the exact example that I use to illustrate the distinction between axiological reasoning and uh, mainstream economics reasoning, which most people are familiar with. And I think minimum wage is a great example because from the Keynesian statist uh, neoclassical economics perspective, there's a bunch of equations and a bunch of numbers and a bunch of you know aggregates that we look at. And these aggregates say, well, if the minimum wage is this much and the unemployment rate is that much and the GDP is this and the inflation rate is that and aggregate demand is this or that and industrial output is declining or whatever else, then we put all of these into this giant model. And of course, there's dozens of, well, not even dozens, thousands of different ways of doing models over the last century, all of which are basically broken. But you know, we plug in those aggregates and then we can figure out what would be the best thing to do for the minimum wage in order to get a you know a, a better society in whatever metric we're looking at, you know, more GDP or higher wages or fewer poor people or fewer unemployed people, fewer homeless people, whatever the metric that we're concerned with, we can through an endless variety of ways, formulate an aggregate model that combines the characteristics uh, that we measure in aggregate, finds a relationship between them. And then, you know, since uh, we're all government paid, so <laughs> there's no risk of being wrong, there's no consequence to being wrong, we just go ahead and assume that that's a scientific relationship. And then we plug it in and we get the number that says, well, the minimum wage needs to be uh, $10 or whatever. So then we go and we live in a world in which the minimum wage is $10. And we expect that the physical world in which we live is going to abide by the rules of the model that some economist whipped up in some university or central bank or whatever, wherein, you know, if minimum wage goes up this much, then unemployment and uh, inflation and uh, GDP and aggregate expenditure and industrial output need to react in these precise ways, you know, up 7%, down 2%. And lo and behold, reality doesn't do that. It's not a chemical experiment with metals and chemicals and gases uh, that you're doing in a lab, in a controlled setting where, you know, you can predict if I apply this much pressure on this container, then the temperature is going to decline to that much. And you can do it a thousand times in a thousand different labs all over the world, and you'll get the same exact result every single time. 
That's not the case with these mathematical models that are in mainstream economics. And so, of course, we don't have any kind of mainstream economist who's come up with a model that has proven to be an accurate representation of things in the real world. And every time they implement something like this, it ends up backfiring. And then, you know, when it does backfire, there's an, there's this kind of pearl-clutching article in the mainstream press. Well, academics don't do any introspection, so there's never any kind of, oh, well, maybe we messed up. No, if, we, if, if things go bad, it's because the world didn't listen to us hard enough. But, you know, journalists might write an article about how this thing didn't work. And, you know, of course, there are all kinds of reasons you can blame it on other than the fact that the plan itself doesn't work. That's the way most people understand economics. If you've gone to university, this is how you studied macroeconomics. But the praxeology way is that what shapes the world around us are not these aggregates that you put into an equation. What shapes the world around us are human beings. And so when you're going and saying the minimum wage needs to go from $7 to $10, what you're doing is you're not making the aggregates of the world change or you're not gonna have the world have less unemployed or unemployed uh, or poor people because the world's going to abide by what your model says. People are going to act based on the law that you put there and their actions are going to bring about the changes that we see in the world. So how does a minimum wage law affect people's actions? That's the key thing. How do people act? Well, the way that it acts, practically speaking, you know, there's all these wonderful things in your complicated model where this is supposed to go up and that's supposed to go down in this incredible Rube Goldberg machine. But in reality, all that you've done is that you've told people if you pay somebody less than $10, you go to jail. That's it. That, that's, that's the relevant bit of information for human action. So what's the result of that? Nobody's going to hire anybody for less than $10. That's it. You know, that, that's how humans act upon it. Now, there is a possibility that maybe if you were getting paid $7, maybe somebody will give you a raise to $10. You could say that. A macroeconomist will respond saying, no, they're not just going to fire everybody. You know, the, the business will, go, will shut down. So they'll just raise the wages. And again, that's an aggregate way of looking at things. It's not the praxeological way because the praxeological way is, yeah, maybe he will raise the wages, but the entrepreneur doesn't sit on a well of endless money where the wage that they give to their worker is just a number that they pick out because it's what allows them to feel good about themselves. They don't just pick a random number. They assign the wage that they are willing to pay for a person based on the economics of it, based on the economic calculation that they perform. And of course, that's a central point in economics, uh, in Austrian economics, economic calculations. So when you look at it that way, then how are people going to act in terms of their economic calculation? Where they're going to fire people that have a marginal productivity less than $10. And if their business is going to go out of business in that situation, and they have no choice but to hire people for more than $10, they're going to react by raising prices. And of course, this then goes back to bite the people who got a minimum wage hike because the prices of things start going up. So a lot of people end up unemployed and the people who did get a raise end up getting a raise that causes prices to go up and then can have enormous consequences, enormous economic consequences later on. So yeah, yeah. that was kind of my uh, example. You know, you hit on that really well. And then from a, I mean, I love from a minimum wage perspective, you know, the the kind of trite response of, you know, why not a hundred dollars an hour? Why not thousand dollars an hour uh, minimum wage? You know, and as a way to get trying to get the person to think, like, what's the principle that is established by that? Like, you know, <laughs> do they think that just everyone will then be paid that amount, or you know, obviously it's like forced unemployment. It's illegal to hire anyone at 
under a certain amount. The challenge is because it's the seen and the unseen. I think it comes back to that where people can see the person who's now getting paid, you know, the the $15, you know, as uh, that's been raised from $10 or whatever it is and, you know, oh, great. But then they don't see the person who's been fired or the, the, the job that has been not created or not not being utilized and that loss of productivity there. And it's it comes back to that difference where it's for praxeology, it's like a, it counterfactuals. So it's like a essentially all else being equal, being utilized, but like, you know, it's the regardless of, you know, whatever the minimum wage is set, every, you know, everything else being equal or like if more than otherwise, what, what would be the case in other other situation is that, yeah, obviously the the force unemployment, depending on the level, right, which you talk about, yeah, it's 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 essentially it doesn't help matters. It's it's only making worse, and then really, yeah, it's it's a good example. It's a tough one with people like intuitively, like as a there's an emotional element to it where while you 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 know you you just want you know in favor of the businessman, you're evil capitalists, you know, uh, and I think being able to take that rhetorical piece where, no, I actually care more about the environment, uh, more about those who were in not great circumstances, have low skills, you know, are trying to upskill apprenticeships, people who are not going to be hired, you know, the most unfortunate in society, you're making them unemployed and not allowing them, you know, social mobility. And worse, you're making them unemployable. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, the, I think, the real catastrophe. And I think minimum wage law is really... I believe, implicated in the fact that there's just a very large number of people that are unemployable. And I think, again, if you think about it from the perspective of human action, you know, if if you get to the age of 25 and you've never developed a work ethic, you're going to have a very hard time in the rest of your life. Like, it's just, you need to be developing these things at a young age. And at a young age, when you don't have a work ethic, when you don't have skills, when you're not very productive in that kind of world, you're, you're not going to get paid a lot. Why would anybody want to get you into business and pay you a high salary that's much higher than your productivity. They won't. But for most people, you know, they take their first job, even if it pays very little. And the reason is, well, on your first job, you learn. So it's true for bartenders. It's true for doctors. It's true for engineers. It's true for lawyers. You know, uh, my brother is a doctor. When he finished medical school in his first year, he was working as a, uh, as an intern or as a resident, you know, in, in these jobs, it's like the last year of, I mean, it is a job, but it's almost like the last year of medical school because the, some of the doctors will be getting paid per hour compared to how much work they do. They'd be getting paid per hour less than what the janitor in that hospital makes. And yet these doctors are competing to get these jobs because obviously what you learn from the job is much more valuable than, than what they pay you on. And then the next year you'll be much more handsomely rewarded for it. So you knock that out. You basically kick away the ladder after you've climbed that. So you create this entire class of people that are not productive enough to be hired and therefore will never gain the productivity that will make them productive enough to be hired at the minimum wage. And of course, yeah, as, uh, and, and the other aspect, as you mentioned, is the, you know, the rich businessman versus the poor worker dichotomy, which people look at. And the, yeah, it seems unfair, but the reality of the matter is that the only reason that that businessman is rich is because they, at every point in running that business, they perform economic calculation at every point, they do the right thing. You know, the reason, the reason that a boat is floating is precisely because it plugs every hole as soon as it imagines. The fact that a boat, a boat doesn't sink 
is, you know, no matter how big the boat, you can't have a tiny little hole in it. A hole will eventually sink the whole thing. You know, the, the big boat will sink from a very large hole, from a very small hole. And so the way that a businessman runs the business is that they have to only hire factors of production, whether it's capital or labor, if they increase the revenue for the business by more than their wage. And so asking the rich person to go and just run their business in a way that is unprofitable because they're rich is, is an admission of not understanding how economics work because the reason you become rich is that you run your business profitably. And of course, the, that rich person, if they had to pay a high salary for somebody in order to get them to work, they will pay it. And they're not out there looking to exploit people. They'll pay people what they can if they can make money out of it. And so when they have to hire somebody for a high salary, you know, it's, it's not some conspiracy that they choose to say, pay the graphic designer more than they pay the janitor. It's just, they're always constantly looking to optimize. And, and again, the perspective of human action is, is very powerful in understanding that. Mm. And then probably the, the, the other side of it as well is like, you know, what a good, good economist does. And so most, <laughs> most of the you know, standard economics profession are bad economists where Bastiat talks about what makes a good economist is someone who looks at the whole picture. It's the seen and the unseen. It's not just one specific side or, or you know, looking at what has resulted, but not what could have resulted. The minimum wage piece, there is a a real good BBC, surprisingly, a BBC clip um, that talks about what raising minimum wage there. And it was a gentleman who is talking about his son who has a disability and his son was working in a cafeteria. He's getting immense amount of value and you can, they show him, you know, seven customers and there's an acknowledgement. He's a bit slower, but is paid a little less, but it, it's not the money that's actually the value proposition for him. It's it's the engagement. It's him, you know, getting a sense of worth, all that. And so th the father was lamenting the people who were actually pushing for the minimum wage increase because they wouldn't be able to afford, the business wouldn't be able to afford him, you know, working anymore. So he was going to lose his job. And that was a major part of his life where he was, you know, engaging with customers and, and really, you know, you can see him um, thriving or, you know, really having a, a good time. And it's like kind of heartbreaking seeing this kind of clip. It's not just the the cold calculation of, you know, economics. We can, it's understanding human action. And yeah, there's no very much, you know, there's no moral high ground for any minimum wage defenders. You're humanitarian. If anyone supports a minimum wage, you're a humanitarian with a guillotine. And yeah, there's, there's no good come from, from that support. So the power of economics is, is is you can understand the the consequences of your action and the policy that's been put in place and that's kind of i think why there's a slight you know it's called the dismal science but i think it's only a dismal science if yeah you're you're not learning from the austrian school perspective like you know with you know, it's akin to applied logic you're if you've got a keynesian a classical you know monetarist you're essentially a positivist approach uh yeah it's dismal like but it's amazingly vibrant and, and, and helpful tool to understand the world. Yeah, that's kind of why you know, potentially get a few recommendations down the track, but it's things that are just very much mind-blowing for like in terms of just epistemology. So epistemology being, you know, trying to determine what is the validity of knowledge. Praxeology is actually the foundation of that. You know, Hopper in economic science and the Austrian method really goes into it well. Look, couldn't recommend that more. It's almost like not as an introductory thing, but after you've read some introductory texts, you know, principles of economics, um, economics in one lesson, a few others, then graduating to that, then 
yeah, I think you almost have to read that to be able to call yourself an Austrian or a praxeologist, uh, just to really cement how vital uh, it is and the foundation of of that for understanding economics. But it's just, that's also just one branch. We'll kind of get to a little bit in a, in a moment. There are other branches, not often understood, but yeah, we can talk about that in a bit. But um, the piece you're kind of touching on is like, met, so one tool of apraxiology is methodological dualism. What's that? It's essentially the epistemological position that's necessary based on our current levels of knowledge and understanding that you have to use different methodology for the natural sciences and social sciences or the physical sciences, essentially. And there's also methodological individualism. So obviously praxiology deals with the actions of individual men and women. And yeah, two that's kind of another tool. And then there's methodological singularism, which doesn't get much as play and much play as individualism, but it's that it's value free. So praxeology, it's like is based. It's not ought. It's not, um, you know, this should be the case. We want it to, you know, be this. It's very much looking at reality and what is the situation. And part of that, it's called the content isn't relevant. It's the logical structure of human action. So, you know, whether you should drink wine or water, that's a thymological, to use uh, to use a Mises phrase. You know, it's a, the reason why. I mean, it's a thymological question. It's it's a, a psychological question. What exactly do you mean by thymological? Yeah, so it's easy summary is it's uh, psychological. So like why someone chooses to drink water or wine, it's something that's relevant to economics and relevant to praxeology. Should you have you know why did this person have beer or you know water? It's yeah, it's, that's a distinction in theory and history. Mises kind of goes into really well where you've got theory, which is, you know, praxeology's realm and, and looking at, you know, scientific approach. So it's all is based. And then you have, you know, there's different fields within human action that aren't universal laws. They're, they're not apply regardless of time and place uh, and, you know, location. So thymology is Mises kind of catch all for the psychological types of, of questions of like why a man acts in particular certain circumstances. But yeah, praxeology is kind of coming back to, you know, all right, I hear this term, you know, what what can we talk about? Like you cover off and there's a litany of, of topics that fall under its umbrella. So obviously like ends, means, there's time, value, cost, you know, profit and obviously profit and loss, you know, preference being time preference or not. It covers off like uncertainty slash certainty, causality, marginal utility, prediction, production. You got like returns, uh, exchange, capital. Talks about rationality. You've got goods, probability, you know, interest rates, labor, calculation, pricing, competition, money, markets, wages taxes, credit, business cycles, inflation, deflation, and, and understanding. So look, that's a, it's almost like you have any kind of opinion on anything that relates to human action. Praxeology is, you know, I'd be advising is can be incredibly helpful, or at least to understand, you know, talking about epistemology, how it's praxeology is the foundation of that. It's kind of used, it's adjusted what that task of epistemology is determining the validity of knowledge. It's kind of what is what knowledge is a priori, what is what knowledge is prior to experience, what is, you know, kind of you know, theory and you know what what using introspection and basing that on axioms and deducing using the axiomatic deductive method, you know, humans act and we can you can get like 
from that simple proposition, you know, you got 1500 pages of man economy and state elaborating on that, you know, you can, and similar with human action. So it's really, yeah, there's a ton of topics that get covered. And a lot of people, again, I, I, the part of my passion is for praxeology is really elaborating or highlighting to people that there is this field of knowledge because that often they don't know it exists. And that's kind of what drives drives me a fair bit with, with pushing that. And, and just the sheer fact that they know it exists, that, that they then, okay, well, maybe my opinion on the minimum wage, you know, is nonsensical if I, you know, it's like, I don't building the bridge. I know there's engineering, I can build it. You know, I need to know, learn that topic to build a, a valid bridge. Similarly, okay, when the sphere of, we're operating in the sphere of human action here, I need to understand praxeology slash economics, which is, you know, the best elaborated branch to actually contribute or, you know, have a, a proper understanding of valid approach to, to the things. Yeah, I think really this is, the, you know, all of praxeology comes from the axiom that humans act. You know, for for non-Austrians, it seems almost like Austrians are just cheating. You know, they, they make all of this analysis and then they come up with the result that the government shouldn't do this. The government shouldn't spend money. The government shouldn't tax. The government shouldn't uh, place uh, regulations that restrict people's freedoms and so on. And it just all seems <laughs> so predictable. And it all seems like a preset agenda, which is why they think of it as a kind of ideology. You know, these people are just ideological free market fundamentalists who want rich people to make more money at the expense of poor people. And that's why they always want to stop our genius plans of helping the poor people by making it illegal to hire them <laughs> or locking them up at home and telling them to breathe through dirty cloth because that's what makes them healthy. So Austrians are generally always skeptical of this. And I think perhaps. Now, now it occurs to me, perhaps the biggest vindication of praxeology might just be the global hysteria over the last two years over the pandemic stuff, because it's actually quite startling how it really was an excellent test of, I would say, intelligence, integrity, but also economic methodology. Because only the Austrians, it's truly astonishing, only the Austrians and specifically the proper, proper, you know, Misesian Austrians who were the ones who were in March 2020 speaking out about this. You know, people like me, Tom Woods, Jeff Deist, these people, you know, Ryan McMacken, Jeffrey Tucker, Conrad Graf. I mean, a lot of those people, it's, it, it's astonishing that they all arrived at the same conclusion when everybody else was freaking out and wetting their pants and concluded that, you know, we're one out of seven is going to die because, you know, some data from China, which is known for its reliable data, is, uh, is telling us that we're all going to die. And so, you know, which one of the seven people you love the most in the world is going to be the one that's going to be taken? And then that was the kind of hysteria. And of course, when people are scared, they become stupid. And so fear is the most effective way of making you stupid. And so it was, it was quite startling that people who think from the human action perspective think, you know, no matter how dangerous this thing is, telling people they can't leave home and that they should do this and they shouldn't do that. And if they don't do this, they, they go to jail or whatever, if they leave their house or that they must wear this thing or take that medical intervention or whatever, this can't work out well because you're forcing people at gunpoint to do things that they otherwise would not want to do. And that is, you know, that's the heart of it. It's not an ideology. It's not that we're just anti-government for the sake of being anti-government. We're not just, um, you know, radical 17-year-olds uh, who just want to um, sound edgy. There's the real issue is that when you impose something against a human's will, 
you are not going to improve on the actions they would have taken if they had followed their own will. And so for me, the entirety of the idea of human action, praxeology, comes back to the fact that humans have a will. And that is not something they teach you in school. <laughs> Don't talk about your will because you know your will is not important. Your will makes the class and you know the, the industrial production of education, it makes it difficult to carry on if you are told that your will is important and that you should listen to yourself and that you should carry out the things that you will and that you should not be excited about people who want to subvert your will according to theirs because you know no matter how special they think they are if their ideas are good they should be able to get those ideas uh, they should be able to convince you willingly to adopt their ideas. And if they need to adopt violence in order to threaten you, if they need to threaten you with violence in order to do something. You know, you may not be the smartest person in the world. You may not be doing the thing that is that other people would do in your position, but you're doing the thing that is right for you. And if you make a mistake, you have a very strong incentive to learn about it. So people's wills, you know, they're always being driven by their will and they and they act in a way that they know is better for them. They might be wrong, but overall, um, when you force them to act against their will, you're going to definitely uh, be wrong. Like you, you can't help somebody by threatening them with violence, I think. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think the kind of hitting on why you know, the Austrians, maybe the crossover like Austrian school, you know, being more precinct in, in those times, and then it kind of rolls over to the libertarian side of things or like sort of rights-based arguments. My kind of just trying to nail on that where historically it's always been like Walter Block, love him. But throughout the Austrian school, it's like kind of set up in terms of with prax relating to praxeology, you've got the Austrian school, which is value-free, it's is-based. And then you've got, all right, you've got libertarianism, whether it's, it's ought-based and it's normative and you know within the sphere of ethics i've kind of come to the realization but i think the better framing and this is following a lot of conrad graf's work where look the con the reason why there's an underlying connection and a lot of crossover is that in terms of economics like a lot of it presupposes property rights so like a lot of the you know trade and and whatnot it you know it's money it's it's you you need a an understanding of property rights, you know, not to do economics, but like there's a, you know, it's what's presupposed. And thanks to, so Conrad Grass got a, an excellent article uh, monograph called Action-Based Jurisprudence. And it really kind of repositions the, my, the understanding of, all right, Austrian economics value-free is based and wait, no, hang on. Libertarianism, not normative, like not ought-based, technically even in Rothbard's terms, if you want to use the old language, it's like metanormative. It's not what you should do, it's what you have a right to do. He talks about that. And so really when you look at Rothbard, Hopper, even though they're using the word ethics, it's definitional. It's it's like the, it's, it's more, you know, this is what theft is. Really what you can kind of look at in a bigger picture, you've got, so praxeology, which is, you know, using a tree metaphor, you've got the root of praxeology, which is derived using the analysis of actions of an isolated individual, you know, the concept of action and its first implications. And then you've got like the trunk, which comprises the analysis of classes of commutative acts. So embroidering slash claiming and consenting, 
you know, accounts for the concept of the first appropriation, possibility of like consensual transfer of property right, property titles. And those concepts are prior to the branching into economic theory and then legal theory is another branch as well. So it's kind of, and the reason what, what kind of helps elaborate on that is, you know, you've got Hopper's a priori of communication and argumentation, you know, also argumentation ethics, which is not like a dear, if you wanted to look at philosophy, um, you know, it's not a consequentialist approach to rights. It's not a uh, deontological, uh, although it can be sometimes construed that way. It's a praxeological approach to to legal theory. Yeah, that yeah, thank you for showing that image there is one good example. Yeah, I've just shown the image, and if you're listening without video, you can uh, see it in the show notes. Yeah, go on. So that's kind of like I guess suppose phase. You know, the the easiest easiest way to look at it in terms of the internal structure. You've obviously got complex issues that can relate to both, which you know you have an economic you know, side of things to it. And you, know, you can look at it through a legal lens as well. And then both those combined. And then you've obviously got at the top, you know, thymology or like the the why and, and, the, and the history side of things. So yeah, that'd probably be my, probably the easiest way to, you know, I think should be the most advanced way to look at how praxeology sits in the grand, grand scheme of things. And also why there's seemingly so much crossover, although, you know, Austrian school value-free approach, you know, where it's all just is based, but then also, Technically, like the legal theory side thing is just is based as well. It kind of redefines, delimits the sphere of what is delimits, praxeologically delimits the sphere of, of what is justifiable. You kind of get very nuanced and you don't necessarily need to go down into those that, that depth. But yeah, it's an amazing journal article that kind of, I think, you know, written in 2011 is still the most advanced kind of building on, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants for Mises, Rothbard and Hopper and then Kinsella you know, very much appreciate his accuracy on a lot of things. This is kind of, I think, the creme de la creme at, at this point. Yeah, I mean, I should add, I'm a big uh, fan of Conrad. He was enormously influential in my understanding of economics and my understanding of Bitcoin in particular as well. He was one of the earliest people who wrote about Bitcoin. He wrote a couple of articles uh, on it that were extremely, extremely influential. You know, at that time, very few people were talking about Bitcoin at all. And he was analyzing it from a, an Austrian perspective in an extremely sophisticated and advanced way. And I, I think I was extremely lucky because I uh, chanced across him very early and it helped like a lot of Austrians had this idea that oh yeah this clearly can't work because it violates the the, the Mises regression Mises regression theorem I, I I just never had that hang up because I first heard about it from Conrad he's uh, he, he's a brilliant mind we should get him on the show I should uh, talk to him about coming on he, he's incredible in his uh, in, in his analytical capabilities just what I think I value so much is like a ridiculous level of value-free approach, just like to taking, you know, it takes that to the nth degree of really, yeah, looking at the understanding things first, seeking first to understand and then be understood. It kind of has this approach where it's no hang-ups and, and, and no baggage, you know, when looking at something new and trying to understand it. I also happen to thank for like an evolutionary health approach, kind of all many years um, kind of pointing me in the right direction there yeah look it's part of it i think is with like we're talking about saying getting someone on you know from a no coiner to a, a coiner you know eventually hopefully a whole coiner for me it was that i trusted him in completely in one area it was like with action-based jurisprudence the things i've been thinking about for quite some time 
I then came across his work. I was like, okay, I don't need to write anything. This is exactly it nailed. And then, okay, well, Bitcoin, you know, might give my understanding, you know, thinking there's a few issues, but no, like him clearing them up and then, and, you know, obviously indicating, you know, why I was wrong. But I felt I had that trust and it was that like, you're, you're on point on this area. Okay. I'm going to, I can trust you or at least it opens the door a bit foot, you know, foot in the door to then understand and look at that. And I think with, it's interesting seeing like the say Bitcoin maximalist community, these different areas, rabbit holes, people have gone down. Initially they'd be like, oh, that's crazy. Like, you know, a carnivore, but then no, like you, you go down and you validate it yourself. It's been intellectually honest you, but you've got a an amazing community. We're all kind of improving. Like it's, there's the old school Leonard Reed, founder of um, Freedom Economic Education, and he has this great talk about one improved unit. And it's not necessarily, it's not about trying to change others. It's focusing on yourself and by growing whatever level you're at, he has this uh, dark room and he's got a little light and he's like, doesn't matter what, you know, how bright you start or, or where you go, it's that growth that is the attraction. And by improving yourself, you can then attract others alike as a convincing piece. It's like, well, he's got, you know, his things, his life sorted out. You know, he's happy, he's, he's whatnot, successful. What, what is he doing? What's, what's he think, you know? And that is the more of the appeal to family and friends and, and others in the draw card as opposed to maybe, you know, trying to push or change minds. And so I see a lot of that within the community, which I think is... Uh, yeah, fantastic, and it's, it's such a joy to be around. You know, Bitcoin is. It's pretty remarkable how, uh, particularly the carnivore issue, just comes along with this. Like it seems like it's a it's a program you have to go through. You know, Bitcoin and carnivore and libertarianism and all those things. And again, it looks ridiculous for people who don't understand any of those things because they can't really see what is common between them because you know when like why would you go and read these weird austrian people that are not even taught in harvard <laughs> they don't teach them in harvard why would you go read them and similarly why would you go try this crazy crazy way of eating where you don't eat all the amazing <laughs> supermarket candy and the sludge that is there for you to eat that is highly addictive like why would you want to deprive yourself of that when you know it's fda approved it's been tested on humans and they know that it's safe and uh, it's good for you. And uh, you can, all right, maybe you can cut down a little bit if you're eating too much, but like, why would you want to live this weird life where you're depriving yourself and your children of all these extremely addictive poisons? And, uh, you know, there's all this scientific literature out there that explains why uh, you should eat a balanced diet that balances between nutrition and poison and <laughs> makes you sick. That's just insane for them that people would doubt that. And yet, if you've decided to study economics on your own, if you decided that, no, I'm going to go with what makes sense rather than what authority says, then you're going to end up being an Austrian. There's no escaping it. And similarly with nutrition, you know, if you just keep reading PubMed, you can spend all of your life on PubMed coming up with conclusions like, uh, you know, a glass of wine protects you from <laughs> diabetes or whatever, and uh, eat some chocolate so that you don't get cancer and coffee protects you from this and that and make sure you drink broccoli smoothies. There's, there's an endless amount of things that you'll find in PubMed that are good for you. If you don't try yourself, if you don't experiment on your own, and if you can't manage to think for yourself, then you're going to continue to just basically, whatever, no matter how much you read from PubMed, you're going to go back to the people who essentially 
you know, the fiat system that shapes the way that this science is formulated. And the only way to break out of it is to think for yourself. And it's just true across the board. And <laughs> the common factor between all of those things is that you thought, think for yourself. If you think for yourself, if you go and try to make sense of the world of economics on your own, you're going to see that Keynes's books are just an impediment, that like the obstacle you need to get over in order to understand the world, whereas the Austrians help you understand the world. I think the, the amazing thing is, okay, yes, Mises isn't the smoothest uh, writer to read. You know, he was writing in German 100 years ago. Even when he was writing in English, he was. I, I, I read this very perceptive uh, sentence about him once. I don't remember who said it, but the, even when he was writing in English, he was writing in German. His mind is German, and so his English is not very easy for non-German speakers to grasp. So it isn't that easy. But the thing about reading the Austrians is you read an Austrian economist and he explains to you how the world works. You read a Keynesian economist in the modern university, you know, you read their paper. The only thing that you could achieve after many, many, many hours of trying to understand what they're doing with their math and all of the modeling and all of the extremely sophisticated mathematical techniques that they employ, the only thing that you will achieve after reading and understanding the paper is that you've understood the paper. And this was one of my favorite parts of being in graduate school where I would go in and ask the professor, when, you know, or at a seminar, somebody would present the paper and I'd always say, all right, so all right, you're right, you know, X, G, Y, this constant that you made up uh, goes up. <laughs> all right, cool. For you, good for you. So how is this useful? And there's always this joke among economists that, well, yeah, it's useful because it informs policy. It's, but they all know that it's useful because it just gets me published and that gets me to keep my job. And <laughs> it's... It's, it, it, it's make work, essentially. You, you read it. If you try and understand the world, all that you're doing is just looking at a video of... It's similar to looking at a video of somebody jumping through hoops in order to get a prize. And the prize is tenure, and the hoops are uh, getting these papers published. But it's not going to help you understand the world. It's not going to help you make sense of how the world works. If there is any kind of relevance to the real world, it's always to promote an inflationary agenda. At the end of the day, this is all of the research in economics, particularly monetary economics, almost all of it, something like 90% of it is financed by the central bank, by the Federal Reserve in the US. There's a paper by Larry White on this, which I always like to bring up because it's great. You, know, you find the funding is always, almost always uh, associated with the Federal Reserve. So there's no way that the Federal Reserve is going to finance somebody who comes up with an anti-inflationary conclusion. Even if you're anti-inflationary, you can be anti-inflationary within the context of inflationary monetary policy, you know, the kind of Milton Friedman anti-inflation. You can have your inflations and we can, we'll bail out the banks if there is ever any problem, but we don't want to have very fast inflation. This, this is the kind of most conservative position you can have, but you're never allowed to ask why should we even have a, a central bank? And I remember asking uh, this, you know, when I first got the orange, uh, when I first got the Austrian till. I'd ask this to all kinds of prominent professors at Columbia and elsewhere that I'd meet at conferences. Like, why should the money supply increase? <laughs> and it was, it was like a Borat moment, you know. The, the, you know, uh, in, in those interviews, when I was doing my interviews for my job, I did it at the American Economic Association meetings. It was in San Francisco in 2009. I was there to interview various universities for my job. Coincidentally enough, it was exactly on the day that Bitcoin started running, January 3rd, 2009. I remember that day because <laughs> I remember I was there. That I, mean, I didn't know about Bitcoin, obviously, but when I heard about the date of Bitcoin, I remember, yeah, I, where was I that day? I was 
going after economists, prominent economists, John Taylor and various other people and be like, yeah, well, you know, John Taylor, you've got this amazing formula for how much the interest rate should be so that the increase of the money supply goes up. Well, why can't the money supply just stay constant? Why do we even need to increase the money supply in the first place? And it was just this Borat moment where they all look aside and be like, it's crazy how much blinkers and, and, and partly obviously if you know the paid propagandists in a sense you know often they you know we reject that but when the the hand that is feeding you is yeah the central bank or a lot of funding comes from you know the, the money printer then yeah you obviously lean that way specifically with like you're talking about inflation and that's often yeah rothbard's got an example where the fed it's like the, the classic case of the robbers running down the road like yelling stop thief you know but he's the actual thief it's you constantly see that with the central banks around the world anything and everything you know is inflationary it's oh, it's your war in ukraine it's like whatever it is but not harping on like the actual definition which is an increase in the money supply and who can control because if you ask that question then it's who controls the money supply well it's the state and then that's the culprit you know via central banks but even just at the moment, like the, the word inflation in a general usage has lost its actual scientific meaning, you know, that Mises uses where inflation is is kind of defined wrongly as an uh, increase in prices. And so even even some, you know, who well-intentioned folk refer to prices going up and down, you know, say, oh, this price of these goods went up. But the, the fact as an example of like, trying, you know, using inflation as like a, an impact on on you know the cost of living the price could go on down so like for instance technology you know the price you know, of tv is down 50 percent inflation though like it could that could have been you know it could have gone down 60 percent so like inflation at 10 percent so you, if that's not being factored in you just it's it's like that it's still not comprehensive it's not scientific it's not looking at the counterfactual of what could have been as well so it's like yeah it's almost they they run interference if they can make that term not understood and obfuscated as much as possible like it's they've done their job as cover because when you really point out who is you know understanding inflation and it stops being about oh the evil greedy businessman is raising his prices it's no well there's more more pieces of paper you know, chasing the same amount of goods in society. There's no actual more goods. You know that that's the real culprit. Look, economic knowledge is really the the key thing there. And I think it it, it kind of with with Bitcoin, it it provides this foundation for you know an intellectual, the anti-intellectual intellectuals, as as Hopper calls them. But for for speaking of like just in terms of revolution, you've got obviously this paid. You know, you've got the state. You've got the central banks, they're paying off the, the economists, you know, the universities, grants, just as a, as a general industry. They're all about obfuscation. It's a barrier, like a mental thickets to people. I don't want to learn economics because that's dismal, that's math, that's, you know, it's not that not going to add any value to my, my world or understanding of things. It's too hard. When re- in reality, it's the opposite. When you learn the Austrians and talk about praxeology, verbal logic, you know, couldn't be more clearer. The writers, yeah, Mises, you know, with a German mindset, <laughs> but Rothbard, if you're looking for talking of clarity, just next level simplicity. Really, yeah, it's Bitcoin, I think, is the counter to that world where it provides the intellectual, the foundation 
outside the system. Like if the state controls, you know, money, money and like can affect everything. If you can go outside that, which Bitcoin, Bitcoin allows, you know, yourself, others, you know, earning, earning Bitcoin, you know, it, you know, that growth there, it, it provides that platform for, you know, a few money where you, you know, unsensible, you know, unrestrictable, many individuals can gain from promoting that. And it becomes that this awesome cycle and it allows for the real change to happen. So I know we're still kind of early days, but it's great to see like the continual growth. It really is going to be such a game-changing piece that already has been. Use cases, you know, extensive, but even just that, you know, number go up in long term um, as a savings vehicle, just being able to kind of imagine, you know, an old bit of something you said something similar in the current environment we're in with, you know, it's almost the collapse kind of has to happen. Like Mises talks about the Jacobites, French Revolution, like bad ideas kind of have to come to a head. They're like often militarist and inflate with inflation. Collapse of the currencies is almost foregone. And what we should be doing is we understand that we've got the escape hatch, we've got Bitcoin, the lifeboat, but it's also building these communities of like-minded individuals. I strongly recommend getting around, around to any local meetups where you can start to build this community and and we've got like just here specifically in Melbourne, Bitcoin meat, like similar to beef initiative here. You can, you know, sats in, in cattle and, you know, you from directly engaging with a farmer, cutting out any kind of third party state interventions. And then there's other areas we're kind of expanding as well. Like people talk about Bitcoin pub. So yeah, it's, it's, That'd be my kind of extra push is if you haven't already, like, yeah, my initial objections were, well, maybe ASIO's there, maybe the AS, you know, ATO, the FBI, you know, for different things. But I think with such a having OPSEC, operational security in mind, but like, look at the benefits, I think, outweigh the negatives, you know, possibly in terms of privacy stuff. So there's a lot of cool people, like-minded people out there and, and get it, get across to, to them. Um, that'd be my, my message. Yeah, and I think another important point to go back to the inflation point is that Keynesian animist view of the world, you know, it's all animal spirits and it's it's really like voodoo. You know, one day people wake up and the stock market has crashed. And why did the stock market crash? Because animal spirits crashed. You know, people one day, they woke up and they were just not in the mood for working and spending. Sorry, not working. Nobody nobody cares about working in the Keynesian view. Keynes never had a job in his life, never worked and never understood the work, what work means. And he squandered his fortune, lost it all gambling. He was a complete loser in every sense of the world, complete idiot. He never quite understood the value of production or saving or any of these concepts, which are pretty central to economics, uh, which is what makes the idea that we venerate this idiot completely laughable. From this idiotic perspective that most people today have of economics as this kind of, you know, this this mysterious thing where one day animal spirits collapse and uh, then the market collapses, and then we need to find a way to fix it. And the only way to fix it is guess what? Print money and hand it to John Maynard Keynes' bankster buddies. That's just always the answer. In that kind of perspective, I mean, you can arrive at any conclusion you want. You know, once, uh, as Voltaire said, if you make, if somebody makes you believe absurdities, then you can commit atrocities. And so when you believe that animal spirits are the reason that uh, poor people are now out on the streets and unemployed and destitute, 
then yeah, sure, it makes sense. Let's just print money, devalue everybody's wealth, hand it over to bankers, and that will fix it. Well, yeah, if you start off being an idiot thinking that it's all animal spirits, then I could drive you to any idiotic conclusion. And that's why people cheer on for their robbery. That's why people cheer on their theft. That's why people watch central banks destroying their livelihood, destroying their future, and they cheer it on. Oh, wow, the central bank is giving us free money. That, isn't that great? They gave us free money. Isn't it great? It's like, you know, it's a teacher and he's handing you gold stars that don't cost them anything. But if you have the human action perspective on it, if you don't believe in idiotic voodoo, superstitious bullshit like animal spirits, if you actually think that yeah, it's human beings, then yeah, inflation doesn't just happen and recessions don't just happen. Somebody somewhere does something and that's what causes the inflation to happen. So somebody somewhere has a money printer and they click print and then more pieces of paper are circulating and then the price goes down. These pieces of paper didn't just materialize because animal spirits went up or down. Somebody clicked a button, you know? It, it, it could be physical money, as was the case in most of the 20th century, meaning printing paper money that causes the hyperinflation. It could be credit money, which is the case in most of, well, increasingly in the, in the more advanced economies in the 20th century, that it's through the creation of credit. But this notion that just, you know, inflation just happens or, you know, it's just the result of supply chain stuff or foreign bad people doing bad things, unlike our good leaders. It's another thing that benefits from the fact that people don't understand praxeology. If you understood praxeology, you'd realize, yeah, you're not... You know, all of this stuff that you've gone through over the last two years, it was not because of a virus that just destroyed the world. It was because of the central planners that took over the world, powered by an inflationary money printer that makes them completely indomitable. So they can shut down your business. They can shut down the whole world for months and years. And then they're still doing lockdowns in different places. And it's just, if you don't have the praxeological way of thinking, if you don't think of the world in terms of human action, then honestly, it's, it's, it's a lot like primitive tribes that used to, you know, attach all kinds of spiritual and supernatural powers to physical objects. You know, they'd worship a, a, a totem or they'd worship a little thing, a, a little piece of wood or a tree or something. And they believed that, you know, if you jumped in a certain way around this tree, then it would give you certain things. And it's the same kind of superstitious nonsense where you imagine causal chains of action that don't exist and you want the world to abide by them but it's uh, you know once you realize no it's all human beings it's human beings all the way down everything that you see around you is done by human beings human beings that are acting the only reason you even see any value in anything that can be economics the reason we have such a thing as an economy is because human beings give value to things you know we don't just come into a world where things are valuable we just learn to accept their value as it is we value things at, at, at every stage. Yeah, I think part of the power of praxeology is coming back to your point about yeah the lockdowns, and I think the the kind of the value free approach in in that sense, which is by focusing on private property rights. So like often, it, and it's the solution that the lockdowns and people's concerns that really never got much play. Um, even when uh, would to me, which is the most fundamental answer. So like obviously, you can argue. We'll say pro-masks, you know, we need masks to, you know, public health, blah, blah, blah. Or if you're anti-masks, the solution is private property. So, like, instead of a state edict, you know, putting one rule across all of society, if you focus on private property rights, allowing individual businesses, organizations to decide what rules are on their property, then you have this 
if you, you know, rich mosaic of choice for customers. So like, okay, I'm like, a, you know, I'm 80 years old and I'm, I'm like health conscious and like, I don't know anything. I'm so very much like, all right, I'll be ultra cautious. I'll go to the cinema that's, you know, ultra masks and, you know, temp checks and, you know, whatever, vaxxed only. And then you've got, well, okay, then I'm, I'm young and, you know, I'm, I'm aware it's, it's not as dangerous as it appears. I will then go to a pub that has no restrictions, doesn't care. And then you will get everyone wins in that sense by focusing on private property rights. And then also if businesses are making bad decisions, I've got a friend who was, uh, has a, you know, medical background, but is like for, for Netflix in, in Australia was his business was about providing good advice and, you know, in the peak of the period. And so, cause they didn't want a case to shut down production and all that. And by competing, you have those services, instead of just having to follow the state guidelines, the, the public health officer, you know, who doesn't have any skin in the game, he's literally, you know, if his advice is terrible, then no one, no other business is going to want to follow his approach. And so you can actually, the market can provide what works. You know, when we know like with some unintended consequences as well, maybe at supermarkets here, there were one supermarket was like masks only. And then, you know, another supermarket is no masks, don't care. Maybe the people who are sick and are wearing a mask, like say wearing a mask, they feel more, well, I don't want to give it to someone so I, but instead of staying indoors because masks quote unquote work, I'm going to go out to the, the shopping center that has masks because I don't want to get out anywhere else sick. But lo and behold, it turns out the masks don't work and more people get sick at the place with, that's using, that requires masks. So it's like, who knows what, you know, would transpire, but at least we have that mechanism, people in the game, individuals, entrepreneurs trying to make the right, right outcome. And it's across the lines, like as a private property rights-based approach as a solution to these issues, like similarly, like climate change, like it's, okay, great. Like, and Rothbard's got a, you know, mechanical work of you know, air pollution and private property rights. And it, it really just lays out the a, a priori, the, pri the private property rights, the private law, the kind of praxological approach, which is the, the legitimate, what's the legitimate framework? And then, okay, empirically, you can argue, what do you have a right to do? It allows with that focus, like, okay, is there actual pollution? Is there actual damage? You know, if you've got strict liability, you've got a, you know, causation, you're going to make that case, you're going to burden of proof. It's like you, if you want to make the case that there's climate change, like sue someone specifically, overcome those burdens that you need to do as a plaintiff, make the case to that core, but it's also not a precedent setting thing. Then the science is on, not, it's not an appeal to the state, special interest getting involved. It's very much, you know, in, in, a, in a court that ideally a private law court understands, you know, the proper framework. And then, you know, it's instead of getting, it's an actual rock solid answer with the praxeological approach. It's a priori, it's, it's grounded, you know, in human action, but also the a priori of argumentation, communication. So Hopper's argumentation ethics, both of those kind of entwined, there's an answer. When you're in contrasting that with the empirical discussions of, you know, is McDonald's, you know, better than Hungry Jacks or like who has more natural sciences around what what happens here. You know, it requires testing. You know, our hypothesis, you test it. It's always open. The science is never settled in that sense. It's always open to adjustments and 
I find relying on the rights-based arguments is a lot more effective because, you know, you're going relying on the empirical stuff, even just like we say fossil fuels are good, there are arguments that I think can can help sway things, but there's a never-ending nature. Oh, here's my study that says this is, you know, X amount of methane or whatever is good or bad. They'll just show another one. Like if if you it, to shut the conversation down, it's like, well, do you agree with these principles? Like what do you have a right to do? And if they do, then it's like, okay, great. There's no concern. They're not initiating violence against anyone. They're not supporting state intervention. They support the same framework. And then reality can, through action, people can get to what's, you know, what's real. Yeah. So it's kind of a highlight. I think it's yeah. often gets not, not focused on uh, as it probably should. Yeah. I think the, the COVID uh, story was, again, another perfect example of this. I mean, it's just... Regardless of what you think of masks or, you know, the, the, the highly lucrative products that I don't like to mention by name because I don't want to get canceled yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, whatever kind of intervention, whatever it is, the correct answer is private property. It doesn't matter whether you think it's right or wrong. You should want to use it. The answer, being able to differentiate between whether you want to do something or not and whether other people are allowed to do that thing or not is, for me... <laughs> is both what makes somebody a libertarian, but also an adult. Like, really, this is what being an adult is. Like, if, if you're able to get over the fact that you don't like baseball, and that's fine, and that's fine for other people to go and play baseball, even if you don't like it, you're an adult. If you're going out saying, I don't like baseball, therefore we need to stop people from being, playing baseball, you are a child. Doesn't matter what baseball is. We could replace it with anything else. If you want to throw people in jail because they drink or smoke things that you don't like, you're a child. You're not an adult. Like this is this is what it really ultimately comes down to. And so in the case of all of all of the restrictions around COVID, it was it was very obvious from the beginning that, you know, well, all right, let people decide. Like you stay home. And you know, for me, I mean, everybody laughed at me at the beginning, but I I knew from, because obviously this isn't the World Health Organization's first rodeo, I'd followed these people before and I know that, you know, anytime somebody sneezes anywhere in the world, they're eager to declare the global pandemic because that's what their institution is there for. I mean, it's, a, it's you set up an organization to fight global pandemics, they're going to try and find global pandemics because without global pandemics, the institution doesn't have a raison d'etre, it doesn't have a reason to exist. So again, human action, people who work in organizations that fight pandemics want to see pandemics everywhere. When you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And so the World Health Organization has done this many times before with SARS and pig flu and whatever, all of these things. And they'd always exaggerated. So I knew this was always going to be exaggerated, but it didn't matter. You know, whatever it is, I was very happy for people to carry out whatever restrictions they wanted as long as they stayed away from me. My personal strategy was from day one, I'm going to continue to take care of my health in a way that got me called neurotic by all the same very bad, unhealthy people who were telling me that I should lock myself up and breathe through dirty cloth and take untested uh therapeutics in order to protect myself. Well, my strategy was I'm just going to do what I always do to stay healthy, which is I eat meat, I don't eat junk, and I, I get a lot of sunshine and I work out. And here we are two years later, and it turns out that that has been more effective than all of the stupid criminal bullshit that all of the public health criminals have foisted upon the world. Like really, ultimately, we, you look at the rates of hospitalizations and serious complications and deaths, and you see what is driving them. It's 
really metabolic health. If you are not healthy, then the virus is a serious problem. If you are healthy, the virus is a bad flu. And I got it twice and I recovered from it very quickly. And it turns out that, yeah, eating steaks and getting sunshine turned out to be much more effective than all the stupid criminal garbage that your government told you. And the reason, the important point I think is, again, why praxeology is just such an inconvenient thing for people in power, why freedom and economics is such an, freedom and economic freedom is such an inconvenient thing, because, well, after a while it became clear, you know, the evidence was mounting that these things weren't working. I mean, it's just so startling. You had to actively seek to be a moron to not notice all the mountains of evidence that were amassing. So you had Sweden, you had Belarus, you had several countries that didn't do any of the stupid voodoo that the World Health Organization told the world to do, all of the Bill Gates science. They didn't do any of that stuff. Now, they promoted this insane bullshit based on the premise that if we don't do it, we're going to have mass death. We're going to have bodies in the street. We're going to have hospitals planning up. And yet they, in the places that, so like if you have a shred of intellectual honesty and if you're anything more than just a hysteric who watches TV and gets programmed to go out and shout at people what the TV tells them, if you have a shred of intellectual honesty, you'd want to study places like Belarus and Sweden with the most excruciating detail to see what would have happened if we didn't do this. And yet zero intellectual curiosity among the people who had this, because again, life if you don't understand the praxeological way of thinking about how humans act, then it's all just about decrees from authority. And it's all just about, you know, trust the science and listen to the right person. Here's my study, which shows that masks works. And here's my study that shows that they don't work. It doesn't matter. I mean, you, well, it does matter. You should read those things to make your own decision. But and, and you should feel free to advocate those decisions to others. Tell others, yeah, I think masks are great. You should wear them. But once you cross the line into using force against other that's where it becomes a problem. And I think, I think in particular with the therapeutics, I think a big part of the push for the mandates of all of these therapeutics was the fact that had they let people have the freedom, it was becoming very obvious that these things weren't as effective as advertised. And so you had to eliminate the control group. This is why they needed the mandates, because if you had a control group, then you could study the two and you could compare infection rates and you could find that this thing is not really making a difference. That's pretty good to them. Yeah, definitely. And look, I, I like to focus on the health and it's essentially all over socialized medicine and looking at, again, the private property rights based approach. It's like, okay, look, this is a, a pandemic, you know, even if you wanted to accept that, well, then, you know, I think health is so vital that, you know, the last thing you want is the state being in control of it. And Hopper's got a, an epic kind of four-step solution to, to healthcare and it, using economic knowledge and, and obviously the, you know, the praxeological approach of rights-based is obviously one, like eliminating all licensing requirements for medical schools, hospitals, pharmacies, medical doctors and healthcare providers like personnel. So increasing supply obviously is, is a key thing there. Instantly, you know, prices generally would fall you know, you get a more variety of options, better consumer choice. The other second point was like removing, eliminating all government restrictions on production and sale of, of pharmaceutical stuff. So a lot of, you know, FDA involvement as well. And like these like appealing to these, the almost the CDC, the FDA, like 
Moloch's of just authority that really, uh, <laughs> really not through efficacy or being really valid at all. And then third one was like de- deregulating the health insurance industry. So like uh, a big piece there where I think, again, if you're, there's a insurance in, in a free society is a much bigger part to pay, much bigger pl- part to play where it can properly align incentives, not just talking about security, but like also, yeah, for, for health and where, you know, if your, you know, standards can develop where like, what is the actual proper approach? You don't need the state dictating this is the one way, you know, masks, <laughs> masks work. And, you know, that initially they, it was masks don't work and then vice versa, like World Health Organization has been on both sides of thing, of the of the recommendations like consistently, you know, early days it was no, they don't and then they flip it on a script and, and they do. And it's like, well, if we allowed, a, you know, again, this rich mosaic of choice, we would have two years of like, st- you know, at least a year of unknowns, you know, it's like, well, we'd have a lot better understanding a lot quicker and potentially a lot of lives would have would have been saved uh, a lot earlier and just the sheer fact of yeah as you said with metabolic health being the key thing it's like fasting you know in the benefits of autophagy and stuff like fasting doesn't have a marketing department there's no special interest groups you know with with health and meat i think that the butchers uh you know really should understand as a carnival community and push that a bit more surprise they're not we almost need to join forces you know Bitcoin meat farmers, you know, what's happening in Netherlands in the farming world with where things are heading with the World Economic Forum, you know, you control the food supply, making it harder for farmers and, you know, you can funnel people more into cities be a bit more easily controlled. I think there's value in, again, establishing those relationships outside of current systems. Paying sats to to get some some meat is a pretty good way uh, to go about things, and then obviously eliminating all subsidies. Like number four was not just the insurance piece, but you're subsidising. What you subsidise, you get more of. And if you subsidising, you know, sick and unhealthy people, then you get more of it. And either unintended or intended consequences. A lot of yeah, hospitals and, and others, you know, doctors being paid considerable amounts per per jab or whatever to they've got an incentive aligned to look the other way if things are not necessarily going as they as they should be or as effective as they are being proclaimed as because you know there's money going to their pocket as well so it's a corrupting influence there not just like talking about regularly regularly capture but yeah like it so it's even on their own terms like if we want to accept oh this is vitally important and it's not just a flu Sure, but hey, these are the actual solutions. Like <laughs> taking your fear. Well, if you care, you know, people just watching mindless, you know, news just pumping, pumping at them. I think half the benefit is is turning, getting people to try and turn turn that stuff off. As like a bigger thing, a lot of it is where people. It's it's like they need to understand. I think what your book, so the Bitcoin Standard, does so well is people need to know the problem. There's a problem. And understand what that is before they can get a solution or think of, even think about a solution. So often we kind of go around like this is a solution to you know Bitcoin solves all these things, it fixes these things. But often we need to highlight like this is the actual problem it solves, and a lot of people do that really well. Um, but the same goes with libertarianism and like you know the the state you know is kind of the 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 essence or the the, the monopoly of ultimate decision making over a given territory with the ability to tax a lot of issues in society really stems from that. And it's half a, half a good fun game of like, Hey, what, what's this current problem? Whatever it is, 
trying to chase back, having a think about, well, what state interventions have caused that, what have contributed to that. And, you know, you can get some fairly, you know, you know, even just inflation. So like Guido Holzman has a good article about how that impacts culture. And you've talked about it really well, like in relation to time preference. And it's, it's again, just another element of how pa- the power of praxeology uh, and understanding it can really open up. You see things in different light and it's really 2020 vision as opposed to the blurred glasses of, of mental thickets of, you know, the state, you know, getting in the way. It's almost, you have to, it's better not knowing economics. Like, you know, economics in terms of like positives, you know, empiricist, you know, crap, better come into with a clean slate and then learning an Austrian school is, is kind of going to be, you know, get up to speed a lot quicker than if you've got all these mental thickets of, you know, the Keynesian different models. It's, it's far harder to undo. Yeah, I should add on the on the on the issue of health and obviously the points you mentioned, I agree entirely on healthcare reform. Uh, one other point where praxeology helps you is during the pandemic of the last couple of years. An- another thing I should mention, you know, I, I didn't just recover very quickly uh, because of stakes and sunshine. I did also take a couple of treatment drugs that are frowned upon very, very, very heavily by everybody who watches TV. And these drugs are I'm not going to say the name because it does not get cancelled, but they have the acronyms. HCQ and IVM. I've taken both. I've witnessed enormous improvement after taking them immediately. And millions of people around the world report the same thing. But, you know, for people who trust an authority, for people who can't think, then, you know, you have all these experts and authorities getting on TV and telling you, don't take this, even though it's generally harmless, even though it's very well studied and we've had it for decades. And we know that there aren't real complications. It's very, 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 very important that you not take it. Even if you're going to die, even if you're close to dying, it's very important that you not take this. And the length to which they went to stop people from taking these drugs, which are very, very well indicated. I mean, people take the first one, HCQ. They take it as a preventative for malaria. So it's not, you know, it's not like you're getting on chemotherapy or anything. It's not like you're doing enormous damage to your body if you take it. The, the 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 implications of it are very well understood but for the average person you know you just hear the of people in authority saying this don't take it then you just don't take it you can't think more in terms of human action well why are these people saying it if you think it does of human action it'll become very obvious these drugs are old drugs they've been around for decades and they don't have patents so there's no way to make money off of them if you gave everybody in the world hcq it's incredibly cheap it's there's no patent on it anybody can manufacture it the formula is out in the open anybody can make more of it so there's no money to be made but there are of course patented uh, solutions to the problem alleged solutions we should say and these are highly profitable so you can see why health authorities would have the incentive to go with but pays better and you know that's it may sound like it is just absurd that they would prioritize you know their wealth and um, millions of dollars over the lives of strangers <laughs> may sound absurd to you but you know might not be so absurd to many many people we we have countless examples of people who would be willing to sacrifice the lives of others for their financial profit unfortunately that's just another part of human action that we need to accept and deal with it as it is rather than complain and bitch and moan and demand and demand that it changes. But I want to ask you, uh, we mentioned, we, we've uh, come across this. What do you think in terms of the uh, issue of economics as value-free? Is economics value-free in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, word phrase, and I'm probably butchering, but Mises used, which yeah, value-free. So not value-laden, very much 
Yeah, it's is based, probably the easiest way to simplify it. It's all about scientific approach. What is the case? You know, again, if if X and Y remains unchanged, then Z will result is kind of the the formula you know, that that's used. It's in its application, like as a praxeological like law, they all kind of form that that sense. Yeah, so absolutely value free, and that's the power of it, I think. And then it's you know obviously starting at human action that axiom you know, self-evident, deducing, adding different postulates in, and then, you know, kind of refining that given, given the procedure of praxeology. And it's not as well, it does, it's not meant to, so it's akin to applied logic. So kind of it's that a priori framework, but obviously applying that, you know, it's a mental tool to help grasp reality. It's not the all factual, total factual reality itself, but without it, you know, you're kind of swinging in the breeze a bit, especially, for example, Mises has like a, a good analogy of who would be more scientific is talking about New York Central Station and there's people moving back and forth. You know, if you were taking an empirical approach, like a positivist approach, which would be, you know, giving a number to every individual and seeing how the patterns emerge and and trying to, you know, get some calculations or formula, create a formula around. Maybe get data on the color of their shirt and then see the trends in the movement of the shirts. I mean, that's <laughs> science, right? Yeah, exactly right. Look, we need some grant. We need a grant, some money to to go investigate this and test this out. So who would be more scientific? It's that approach or the praxeological approach where, you know, understanding, you know, individual action, humans are using scarce means to obtain certain ends. Oh, he's going to work. Oh, catching the train. You know, oh, he's meeting his girlfriend. You know, that you get a lot better understanding and it would be, you know, that'd be more scientific, you know, the other alternate approach, the more scientistic yeah, and ultimately a key point which we didn't mention is, is the idea that data is mute without theory. Data cannot say anything without theory. So there's no amount of numerical analysis of people getting into Grand Central Station that will make you understand what's going on there in terms of numbers unless you really understand what is actually going on. You just There's just no alternative to it, and it, it breaks the minds of Keynesians that uh, it can't just, you know, understanding is not something that you can fit into a model uh, very easily. But you have to understand, this is a train. Those people go to work. That's why it gets really crowded in the morning because everybody's going to work. That's why it gets really crowded in the evening when everybody's not going to work. And that's why it doesn't get crowded on holidays because nobody's going on to work. Like If you don't understand this, no amount of numerical analysis of a traffic in Grand Central will allow you to predict what's going to happen tomorrow in Grand Central. If you understand that there's days, weekdays and weekends, there's holidays, there's work, there's this, there's that. If you understand the trends, if you understand how the weather impacts things, then you can understand what the phenomenon that is going on. And ultimately it is shaped by humans acting. So, but in, 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 in our emails beforehand, you'd said that you wanted to argue against the idea that economics is value free and libertarianism is about art. You said, and the whole characterization that Austrian economics is value-free and libertarianism is about arts is incorrect. Right. Sorry. So clarification there. No, Austrian economics, value-free, absolutely. More, it was the, the, the point that the characterization that libertarianism is ought-based or ethics-based, where I think it's also value-free. So using Hans Hermann Hoppe's a prior of argumentation and communication, the the trunk is, you know, praxeology or trees, the roots are praxeology. And then you've got different branches, you've got economics. So everything, you know, Mises has provided the, the, the framework for and Rothbard and, and Hopper and everyone else. 
And then also a different branch of the same tree or the same trunk is then libertarianism, libertarianism proper, you know, action-based jurisprudence to use Conrad's phrase, which is essentially exactly the same as everything that Rothbard, there's no real, I'm just recharacterizing it as opposed to there's nothing different or wrong with it either or. I think it just helps from a, a clarity sake that, yeah, they're both value-free. They're both, you take the praxeological approach and that's why there's that crossover fairly easily between Austrians and then as like mostly libertarians. Like understanding whilst it's value-free, you can understand you know, rent control is bad, you know, the consequences of that. And then from a rights-based thing, you know, whether that's justifiable or not, there is then the, eth what's left is then ethics, which is, that is the ought-based stuff. Should I, should I not? Like your own personal preferences, whatever it is, you've got the framework of economics and legal theory or libertarianism that provide the is-based element to it. So that can help inform your decision on whether you should respect the NAP the non-aggression principle or not in that instance. And what kind of Conrad has come down a hopper is the, on, the only kind of justifiable conclusion is that the, the NAP is the, the non-aggression principle is the only one that is like essentially justifiable on its own. So like obviously starting from the concept of self-ownership, you know, no one has a better claim to your life than you do, your body. Uh, and then that can extrapolate to original appropriation. First appropriation principle, you've got a better claim to your body. And then through prototyping that, to the external world and resources. And yeah, so it's it kind of builds from that, but yeah, no, absolutely value-free. Yeah, they, so don't want to argue against, uh, it's it's not, no, definitely it's the other side that- I see. I think with with Walter Block, you know, the characterization is very easy to do, like, you know, and, and so I kind of, you know, all my years going along with that. And it was often for handling certain objections and characterizations, I, I found that Conrad's approach is probably the, the most cleaned up or accurate and yeah, I'm a big sucker for accuracy. So I, that's the action-based jurisprudence article. I highly recommend anyone reading that. Probably not as an intro piece in terms of libertarianism, Bastiat's The Law, some of Ron's books and a few, and for, for a new liberty, ethics of liberty, Hans's stuff as well. But after going through a fair bit of that, then kind of, if you've been around for a while, I couldn't recommend that, that journal article enough. Yeah. So, uh, Give us your brief summary of argumentation ethics. You mentioned it briefly, but what is this? What is it? Argumentation ethics. So also, I don't, cause I'm trying to stay away from the ethics word, the prior of argumentation communication, but yes, essentially it's very intertwined with the human action axiom. So kind of Hopper goes into it in the economic science and the Austrian method where you're talking about what comes first. So like, you know, understanding human action, but then you have to argue to, to make the case. And, but that argument is also an action. So there's a, an element of they're both existing at the you know when we're communicating at the same time they're both fundamental, but the easiest way to think about argumentation ethics is like look, you you don't care if someone's acting like a, a criminal like they're they're showing aggressive aggression, that's you know you got to handle them the way anyone like you're handling an animal like someone who can't be reasoned with they're, there's they're not rational like a gorilla or, or you know a lion it's a technical problem but in terms of justifying it's all about justification so you're propose you have to propose in the course of argument and what's presupposed by that well obviously self-ownership for yourself and the person you're engaging with you're essentially recognizing they've got a better claim to their body than than you do uh and then that from that it's, you know, if there's a conflict, 
So someone wants like a socialist or, you know, someone is trying to justify their aggression in the process of that to try and justify it, they have to argue and what is presupposed by that is, you know, this concept of self-ownership and, um, and non-aggression and like private property rights. So that's probably the, the easiest summaries where you're going about your day, you know, you, ha- you have to handle technical considerations like if someone's not to be reasoned with, but if they actually want to try and justify it, they almost have to try and justify during the course of peaceful in communication, I think violence is justified. And there's a contradiction, a performative contradiction there invalidates their claim, essentially. It detonates the process of using it. It's, it's, you know, becomes clear it's not true, given what's being presupposed. So it provides like a powerful praxeological approach to the different from the traditional rights, rights-based stuff like natural law. I'm a big fan of those. And, and Hopper kind of makes the point, look, it's, it's not, it's, it's a different from that tradition, but it's in the same vein. Rothbard obviously admitted he was wrong after 30 years of thinking that you have to, you couldn't justify it, libertarianism in terms of from a value-laden, value-free approach. And so he, he's got a, I uh, forget the name of the article, but it's, it's uh, basically elaborates that, yeah, Hopper was, was correct and made this, you know, advancement you know, several thousand years in terms of philosophy, you know, have, have not been able to kind of solve this. And he's provided this hardcore kind of axiomatic rights-based approach uh, that's value-free, but also nails that, yeah, the, the rights-based kind of piece to it as well. So, yeah, that's probably my... Yeah. I find argumentation and ethics to be an extremely powerful argument. I think uh, I love how it uh, <laughs> it gets everybody's knickers in a twist. Everybody gets really upset about it. Like, this is so silly. You can't just prove things by saying that you're arguing and that pro- the mere fact of you arguing things proves my point right. You can't do that. That's cheating. That's ridiculous. That's so childish. And I just love it. I love how angry it makes them because it's very true. Like if you engage in argumentation with me, if you, you know, that presupposes such a giant complex succession of steps of civilization that need to be there in order for you and I to sit together and talk to each other like civilized human beings, instead of just being chimps swinging our feces at each other, a lot needs to happen. I need to respect you as a human being. And I need to respect that I, you know, I need to respect your sovereignty over your property and your body. If I'm trying to argue with you, that means I respect that you have a mind of your own, you have an opinion, and I'm trying to change it. And I'm trying to get you to act in a different way. I'm trying to get you to behave in a different way. So the mere fact of arguing with you about anything is an acknowledgement that you are a human being with sovereignty, with uh, the right. And so, the, the, which is why, I mean, um, I mean, a lot of people are probably going to get upset with this, but frankly, if you're a statist, you're not really a human being. <laughs> it's it's yeah i think the way you characterize it as well it's like some objections are around well you know they don't understand the argument is often the case and the the objection is like oh well taxation exists or there's the gulags existence it's like no it's an it's an impossibility proof it's impossible to justify those things so like referencing empirical evidence or you know history doesn't actually help it's like within the it's it's indicating that like you know you can't you fall into contradiction like you know trying to justify propose that it's it's purely intellectual in nature like logical or mathematical you know praxeological proofs yeah and yeah often 
folks don't grok the the real understanding of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, I think uh, the point I'm making, I mean, obviously, was being a little bit hyperbolic. Well, maybe not, but like what makes us humans and what distinguishes us from animals is the ability to reason, is the ability to respect one another, is the ability to understand property and the ability to cooperate with one another. We can cooperate, we can build things, we can reason, we can talk. So in order to do that, that all rests on a foundation of I have to respect your property rights. And the people who don't understand that don't understand how this is the reason that they have anything, you know. Um, so a lot of violent and statist people, and I use the term people here um, in quotation marks, a lot of these people, you know, will, they'll tell you, oh, no, 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 violence is legitimate. And, you know, in certain cases, it's okay for me to violate others' uh, rights and to initiate aggression because, you know, I have reasons for it. And yet they don't quite understand that the only reason that you're not in a jungle um, uh, running away from predators and um, getting and, and you know fighting with other members of your species day and night is because we've put this animalistic idea of aggression is okay behind us enough for us to swing. To, to, to put together a bunch of capital so that it becomes productive, to build human capital, to build all these institutions that like language, culture, all of these things happen after we stop swinging our feces at each other. Mm. <laughs> it's, we, we need to respect each other's sovereignty over our own bodies in order for anything to happen. And so when you say, no, 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 no. I want to live in the 21st century. I want to have wonderful computers. I want to have all these amazing technologies. But I also think that it's okay to violate others. You're just being an idiot. And I, I mean, you're re what you're saying is, you know, I want to have cooperation of millions of people to build my laptop based on the idea that they all respect each other's property rights because that's the only way that we can build laptops. Slavery has never built a laptop and slaves will never build something like a laptop. The only reason that we can get something like a laptop is because millions of people from all over the world cooperate from the engineers to the workers to the miners who mine the substances. All of these people have property rights. All of these get out of bed in the morning to work to make your laptop because they're getting paid to it and so they're doing it voluntarily. So everything that you know, the, all, all the books that you've ever read, all the machines that you've ever used, everything is a product of civilization, which is a product of us respecting each other. So you're not being a genius when you come up and say, oh, well, actually, I think I can violate other people's property because I am smart and I went to a stupid ass university that taught me that in certain circumstances, people in government should do evil things to others and it's okay. You're not being smart when you're coming up with this. You've just rediscovered animals slinging their feces at each other. You've just discovered being chimps in the jungle. That's it. If we extend this, we go back to being chimps in the jungle. If we respect each other's property, we can have nice things. And so I love Hoppe's argument because really this is the only way that you can actually engage with people who are arguing for violence. You're arguing for the initiation of violence. You're correct. You just should not be in human society. You should be out there living the consequences of violence, of initiating violence. Live in a society where everybody accepts that it's okay to initiate violence against other people, or at least everybody accepts that it's okay for me to decide when it is okay to initiate violence. And this is the thing the statist idiots don't get. They think it's sustainable if we just pick a bunch of people and we give them the right <laughs> to violate everybody else's property 
and ask them nicely to please not use this for the forces of evil and only use it for the forces of good, that that's somehow sustainable. That we could have a society where everybody needs to respect everybody's property rights, except a small group of people who get to legitimately initiate violence. This is completely absurd because it's completely unsustainable because why should you get to be the one who decides who gets to initiate violence and not me? And if it's going to be you, well, no, I want it to be me. So it's just a recipe for more conflict. The only way that we can try and avoid conflict is by accepting property rights. I think the the key thing there is I, I like to f- think most people are soft libertarians in the sense that in their daily lives, like obviously they're all about live and let live, you know, try and help each other out, respect each other's rights, generally speaking, you know, hope for the flourishing of their friends and family, you know, neighbours and fellow fellow man, you know, striving for their own happiness and, and um, our own flourishing. And that's like the essence of civilization, where we all benefit from living from amongst each other, you know, division of labour, communication, you know, learning, cooperation, transmission of like accumulated knowledge, You've got society, friendship, trade, discourse, you know, intercourse. It's, uh, I think like libertarian is kind of the extension of civility of society to a more rigorous, systematic, principled level informed by economics. So that's the key where I think with, so a lot of those people have self-righteous, you know, violating rights. They do that. They support that because they think it's going to, it's a good end. Like uh, I support the minimum wage because that initiation of violence against you know businesses because it's going to help this person. But economics can kind of pull the wool, you know, pull the covers you know over and and indicate well actually no, it hurts, it doesn't help. And so folks that would have this authoritarian authoritarian kind of self righteous um, uh, angle by learning economics, it kind of uh, can help them you know, orientate properly what supporting the right means, which also the justifiable means or ends to that effect. Yeah. And, and I think probably we haven't mentioned the economic calculation just as a, like a mental tool for, I think one of the most strongest arguments against socialism and, and a good example we've just been talking about where, you know, imagine you're a benevolent dictator and you own all the resources in society, like, you know, people, you know, labor capital so like woods forests you know whatever it is and then how would you you know how do you make a decision around how do you rationally allocate resources so you're you're the benevolent dictator should that wood go to build a house or a fire like and without the concept of private property without then prices without a market you can't rationally allocate resources. And even it's to Mises' argument, you know, 1920s essentially nailed, even just it's killed the socialist argument in terms of we can assume you've got benevolent, you've got everyone's on board with socialism. Everyone's a socialist. Everyone's a communist. Everyone's, you know, keen to, to follow. You still can't beat that problem. Like how do you rationally allocate resources in society without, without pricing? And so socialism's done. And I think it's a tragedy that, well, not tragedy, but a lot of conservatives, a lot of, you know, people who are more free market orientated don't you don't, un, don't understand Austrian economics, don't understand that argument. It's the one of the most, the most powerful argument that exists. It's like, I accept everything you want to do. You can't do it because of this reason. And yes, <laughs> it's like, where, where do they go from there? Like then it's, it's kind of a, it's a devolved socialism. It's devolved. It used to be that, you know, the new age man, and then it became, 
you know, devolved to one of the Mises economic calculation argument kind of blew that out of the water. And then, you know, now it's this postmodernism kind of, you know, they're on where we're at at the moment. Yeah. But yeah, again, another power, power, power of praxeology. It is, this is very astute. It's, it's one of the most regrettable things that the vast majority of socialists and anti-socialists think that the problem with socialism is merely an incentive problem. The reason the Soviet Union fell apart is that people weren't incentivized to work because they knew that they couldn't get rich. That's the argument that most people think is the problem with socialism, which Mises shows is not the real economic problem. I believe this is a serious problem, obviously, but it's not an insurmountable problem because you know there's the motivation of I want to work because I don't want to because I want to get rich, but there's an even stronger motivation of I want to work because I don't want to go to the gulag. <laughs> People hate going to the gulag more than they love getting rich. So definitely, the Soviet Union solved the incentive problem. Pol Pot in Cambodia definitely did not have an issue with motivating his uh, peons to get up in the morning and go work because they knew that if they didn't, consequences would be terrible. And yet all of those places collapsed economically. And yet all of those places, even if you had staffed them with the most enthusiastic and most delusional socialists who are willing to accept anything you tell them, or will wake up and work all day for the sake of the cause. As you said, the issue is how do you, as a human being, act to calculate the different uses of different goods? How do you allocate resources in a way that is most productive? And even if you solve the incentive problem, you're not going to be able to solve that because it's, a, it's, it's an intractable calculation problem. And the only solution of it for it is property. The only solution for it is to allow people to well, not allow, I shouldn't say allow, because who the hell are you to allow people? You're in no position to allow anybody. Nobody's in a position to allow others to own. But the only solution is that if people own things, they are able to make economic calculation on those things, understand what is the best use of them, and then people can allocate resources in a way that is the most productive according to their eyes. That's not something that can be solved with a central planner, no matter what, because without private property, there's just no way around this. Indeed. I think just kind of coming back to like the axiom, human action axiom, Hopper's, you know, our prior of argumentation or argumentation ethics, it's like the attempt to like, what's that all grounded upon? Like, well, the, just the, the attempt to disprove the action axiom would itself be an action aimed at a goal, requiring means, excluding other courses of action, incurring costs and subjecting the actor to the possibility of achieving that or not, um, their desired goal. So leading to a profit or loss. Yeah, I'm kind of paraphrasing like Hopper in um, Economic Science and Austrian Method, but he goes on to say like the very possession of such knowledge then can never be disputed and the validity of these concepts can never be falsified by any contingent experience for disputing or falsifying anything would have to be presupposed by their very existence. As, as a matter of fact, in a situation in which these categories of action would cease to have a real existence could itself never be observed for making an observation too is an action. So really kind of just how different praxeology is in terms of like new field of science over the last 200 years, it's been elaborated upon by by Mises, Rothbard, Hopper, and, and many others, you know, in that tradition. And yeah, it, it just blows my mind. Say someone reading the, the, the white paper for Satoshi and, you know, someone grokking that. I didn't grok that. I read it and it was went over my head. So I had the help of, you know, Conrad and others kind of simplifying or, you know, 
really clearly elucidating the value proposition. The same goes then, I think, another sphere, which is praxeology, Hans Hermann Hoppe's economic science, the Austrian method, was just as mind-blowing for me as well, contrasting understanding Bitcoin and understanding the power of, of praxeology. Yeah, couldn't couldn't rave about that more. But I suppose if I wanted to like try and summarize like a bit of a what if about praxeology in terms of probably I'll go through this this little bit I've got here, which I think helps capture its importance. So what if there is a different type of knowledge available to humanity, knowledge which cannot be regarded either as logic, mathematics, physics, or biology, not psychology, technology, ethics, or history, and you, a type that was scientific and value-free which describe the consequences of human action. What if it provided definitive knowledge that was not part of ethical or sciences, was not contingent, merely contingent or conventional in nature, but it must be so? What if it furnished laws, yeah, in the form of if X and if Y remains unchanged, then Z results? What if we knew with absolute certainty what would happen if a specific policy was implemented before it was carried out? What if it did not require testing for us to know it to be absolutely true? What if this type of knowledge pertaining to people and societies was not in the modes of either actuality and possibility, you know, is or isn't, could be or could not be, but was always and as necessity properly characterized as must be? What if this type of knowledge was always with us, not in the sense of being innate, but self-evident once proposed, and it's discoverable by reason, reflection, and understanding. What if by attempting to deny its existence, you actually proved it to be true? What if it was disregarded by numerous human beings, you know, civilization at our own peril, uh, peril and detriment of all? What if there was a series of thinkers who have already discovered and elaborated this sphere of knowledge? What if they deduced from self-evident axioms the knowledge directly relevant to solving most of society's institutional problems? What if these solutions and gems of truth were often lost in a sea of mediocrity and intellectual dishonesty? What if the path forward towards freedom lies squarely with its acknowledgement and widespread understanding? What if these who deny the possibility of such a field of knowledge are no worse than the 17th century astronomers who refused to look through the telescope that would have shown them Galileo was right? and they were wrong. What if it all, all this already exists? You know, imagine how much aggression, suffering, death, and destruction could be avoided. Imagine the growth of justice, peace, prosperity, cooperation, conflict avoidance, and you know, civilization as a result. What is this field of knowledge? The science of human action called praxeology. So yeah, that's a, <laughs> a bit of a, a snapshot. Um, uh, I think good summary, at least of the value I think it brings. I think that was extremely, extremely powerful. Very eloquent. Thank you very much for that. I, I, I believe it's a, it's a great way of demonstrating the value proposition. I should tell you something. I'll make a little bit of confession to end with. When I taught economics, I taught economics for 10 years at university level. And I think, I honestly think the success of my book and my courses online and the podcast I think largely goes down to the fact that I was communicating economic ideas for about 10 years to people. And I just did this job with a lot of focus and with a lot of dedication to trying to figure out how to crack getting the idea across to somebody. And one thing that I had come across, I don't know why this is the case. Well, I mean, I I have ideas about why, but I just, I noticed that generally when you 
tell people the term praxeology, it just, the, their eyes blaze over it. If you just don't use the term praxeology and you just use the term Austrian economics, it's just making your job much easier because there's just something about the word. <laughs> I don't know, because X <laughs> in the middle, maybe. It just seems like you're trying to get me into a cult or something. Or you're, <laughs> you're trying to propose like like some weird pseudoscientific thing where it, it just tends to turn people off. And it's very difficult to try and tell them, well, first of all, explain to them why they should listen to what praxeology is and then explain to them why it is important, what are the implications of it are. But I think you just did a terrific job. I'm going to make that a couple of minute intro as my kind of uh, couple of minute rant as, as my go-to <laughs> intro into what praxeology is and why it is important. I think it's, it's, it's a very powerful way of putting it. And it's, it's, it's a better way of putting it than anything I could have come up with. So thank you very much for that. No problem. I think it, I definitely understand the the eyes glazing. I've seen the eyes glazing over peace. And you're right. Like sometimes not even using the word can can, can you know help things out. It does have a rich history. So like obviously praxe, praxeology was Mises' explicit and self conscious elaboration of that procedure for discovering causal laws, you know, governing market phenomena. But yeah, the Austrian, early Austrian school, obviously, and their followers, even some better classical economists use that the research method without being fully aware of it. But yeah, it's it's kind of obviously the praxeological method begins with self-evident reality of human action and its immediate implications. But yeah, Mist has kind of given us that whole, f- that framework. And yeah, it's, I know how like the Austrian school got its label, you know, the German, you know, historicists using it as kind of a denigrating or like, you know, uh, you know, all the you know, Austrians and that kind of stuck. And it's like funny how you know, say maybe the maximalist again, you know, by analogy, you know, Vitalak, you know, you know, <laughs> or your maxis, and then that's you know stuck uh, as a positive as well. And I think just using the term Austrian schools, obviously taken off. I think large part in in the Bitcoin world because of your your work. It's fascinating and it's awesome seeing everyone. Bitcoin is going down that Austrian rabbit hole. Like they've intuitively, they're across the practical side of things. They're all across that, and it's like okay, well, trying to understand it a bit better. They understand that the Austrian schools there. There's this field of knowledge that they can. They can gain a lot of helpful mental tools for to understand reality. And so you've helped drive that in a large part. It's kind of interesting seeing from the Austrian side, those have the theory and then the Bitcoin pipeline as well. It's it's like two kind of sides of the same coin. People coming to it at the same, getting to the same end result, which is, you know, being fully on board, free to money. Looking forward to see how things kind of continue to, to grow. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us look there's no i think it's probably a good good place to to wrap things up certain things i can you know rant about maybe but we'll we'll get you on again definitely to rant okay, well, again, I'll, save, sure. <laughs> I'll save my some rants um for, for later but no no i very much appreciate it coming on and yeah it's been great chatting with you cheers likewise well where can people find you what uh, where which parts of the internet are you on so Twitter's, you know, the standard one, just Konza, real life nickname. So just that's the handle on YouTube as well. So a few million views, but that's mostly not for me talking or anything. It's taking the best snapshot gems of resources across, you know, over the last decade plus that I think have been valuable. And so I've got them on YouTube channel and made a few edits over the years too. Otherwise, uh, Mises.org.au, if you're interested in the Mises seminar stuff, probably about 50 videos, you know, Hopper, Bolter Block, Jeffrey Tucker coming out, Conrad Graf's Bitcoin speeches. They live there. And then um, 
you also kind of libertarianparty.org.au as well for kind of a launch phase. Bit different to Libertarian Party, you know, traditionally in the US. I know it's good to see the Mises Caucus getting up with, you know, radically proposing those ideas and, you know, trying to use. It's unfortunate that often the politics is that every, you know, the elections come around, that's their the slight window of opportunity to to get into people's thinking about these bigger ideas, whether it's, you know, getting rid of the sand, ending the Fed, you know, Bitcoin, the benefits of that, that, you know, are there, you've got this like slight opportunity. So along similar lines with Ron Paul, with education being the first and foremost value proposition, it's like spreading the message of liberty. That's, we've got a similar mindset, you know, being radical and stuff as well with the Libertarian Party kind of co-founded but no that's it um twitter youtube that's kind of i suppose there is a praxeological science group if anyone's still on facebook and then a praxeological science group maybe four thousand members very much not in, not not it's, it's all about praxeology so that's probably a good place for everyone to dive in if they've got any questions excellent thank you thank you so much for joining us we'll definitely be having you on again to talk more praxeology awesome thanks safe cheers